From the Edwin Cardinal O'Brien Pastoral Center in Washington, D.C., home base for the Archdiocese for the Military Services USA, this is Catholic Military Life, a podcast of the Archdiocese. I'm your moderator, Taylor Henry, and it's my privilege to welcome as my guest for this edition, Ms. Sarah Wanarka, a U.S. Assistant Attorney in the U.S. Justice Department. Uh, we're talking to Ms. Wanarka in Alpine, Texas. Uh, Ms. Wanarka, welcome to our podcast. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And uh, you are an unusual guest for us in the sense that uh, you're not military, but you spent a good bit of time in Afghanistan uh, between uh, 2012 and 2014, two trips as I understand it, and you worked uh, closely with the military and with U.S. military chaplains, Catholic chaplains in particular. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about how you came to go to Afghanistan and share some of your experiences with the Catholic military chaplains you encountered there? Absolutely. First, I'd like to say I am an Army brat, so that's as close to the military as I've come, but uh, but I think that qualifies me very well. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with that. We grew up with a colonel in the house, so uh, <laughs> okay. I'm, I was well prepared for Afghanistan. <laughs> But so the, the way I got to Afghanistan is because of a collaboration between the State Department and the Justice Department. And what I mean by that is as the State Department, um, as the war was ending, and during the war, but as the war was ending, uh, the, the attention turned to uh, strengthening the community and the civilian rule of law in Kabul. In so doing, training was needed uh, and requested for the Afghan prosecutors. So the State Department reaches out to the Justice Department to recruit and ask federal prosecutors, which is what I am, uh, to come overseas to Kabul and train and mentor the Afghan prosecutors. Now, what was unique about that is due to the security, the the nature of the security uh, situation in Kabul is that most of the prosecution units were in secured compounds. And specifically, I was assigned to the Counter Justice Narcotics Center. We call that the CNJC. And it was the federal court, so to speak, of uh, the federal drug court for Afghanistan. But because of the security, uh, the prosecutors were there, the investigators were there, the the judges, the three the three levels, primary appellate and final judges, were there, um, as well as the detention center. And so everything happened on that property. And so while I was there to mentor Afghan prosecutors, it really was group training with the judges and the investigators as well. Very interesting. So uh, Afghanistan is known for its opium crop. I suppose that a lot of the cases involved that, or did they? Yes, absolutely they did. And there were thresholds that if you had certain amounts, if, if one possessed or distributed certain amounts of opium, hashish, uh, heroin, cocaine, even alcohol, if you had certain amounts, then you were automatically transferred to the CNJC in Kabul. So if you had a large amount of opium, 
down in Kandahar or out in Herat or up in Kunduz. You were not prosecuted in your home province. You were transported to Kabul where you stood trial uh, for the possession of those drugs. The, the average sentence assessed at the CNJC was about 16 years. So they were significant sentences uh, for the possession of the drugs and the alcohol. Wow. Were these defendants prosecuted under U.S. law? No, they were prosecuted under Afghan law. We were, as, as the DOJ lawyers, we were there in just an advisory role. We were not practicing. We would talk to the prosecutors about their cases, about proof that was needed. A lot of our discussion uh, surrounded burden of proof because their law and their constitution does not have one. So, for example, in the United States, to find somebody guilty of a crime, we must prove that it happened beyond a reasonable doubt. In Afghan law, and, and certainly everything's, everything's, who knows what is going on there today, but back when we were there, we were trying to impress the idea of a burden of proof and that someone has to have a certain element of knowledge and intent to be found guilty. That, was, that we worked on that issue probably more than anything else. Very interesting. Okay, so you're in Afghanistan for about 18 months from February 2012 through August of uh, 2013, and then back again in 2014 for a few months. And during that time, you had interaction with the U.S. Army and U.S. Army Catholic chaplains. Tell me about that. When I got to the embassy in early 2012, uh, obviously, it's a shock to the system. Um, it's a uh, different way of, of life. It's, it's, um, it's was certainly much more comfortable than our troops down out in the field. I, I want to most certainly say that. But for someone like me who did not go through any sort of basic training uh, or any other types of preparation um, to be in a war zone, it was a different. It was different. Uh, to get accustomed to. They tell you in the training you have to learn your new normal. And so I was learning what my new normal was, the sounds, uh, what I was seeing, the people I was interacting with. Learning the new normal away from home uh, was a little bit stressful. And then, of course, in an active war zone, every day is you live in a constant state of emergency. And, and you wake up and hope that today's not the day. But... Um, what I really relied on were things that allowed me to just kind of breathe and take a moment to um, clear my mind. And certainly the friends that I made at the, at the embassy um, became family. But many of us in this family uh, started going to mass together. And the way that the embassy was set up there in Kabul is that it was connected to the ISAF headquarters, which was essentially the coalition forces. And it was, um, I mean, General Allen was there, the, 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 the military, United States and British and all of the uh, different countries that were in play in Afghanistan all had leadership at ISAF headquarters. That is where the church was. It was actually a building, just a building called The Rock. And or, I'm sorry, Saturday evenings at 5 o'clock was the assigned 
Catholic Mass time. Sunday morning, and I don't recall the time, that was when there was a Protestant service. So Saturday night was the Catholic Mass, Sunday morning was the Protestant service. Now, the priest, however, was not, did not live at ISAF headquarters. I don't recall what camp the priests lived in, but they had a schedule uh, to go to all of the different compounds, because there were a handful in in Kabul proper um, that had enough people to support a mass. And so our priest would come from one, as he would travel from one of the compounds to ISAF headquarters for the Saturday at 5 o'clock mass. And so we would, there was a hand, gosh, when I first got there, I think there were, it was, it was myself, another two DOJ lawyers, a bunch of FBI agents, some cigar agents. That's the Special Inspector General of Afghan Reconstruction Funds. <laughs> <laughs> and so a big group of us would, would go over and, uh, and sit in mass, and it just was exactly what I needed. It, the, the opportunity to sit there and be in something that was like home, that was familiar and comfortable, and of course it was very informal. I mean, it's, people are in multiple countries of fatigues, and it, it, was, it, was, it was the coalition headquarters, so multiple countries of people came to Mass, and it was just a really neat thing to have everybody come together, regardless of your native language, and be right on the same page and just have that same just kind of comfort um, of math that we would have back home. Now, you mentioned General Allen. Of course, you're talking about uh, U.S. Marine Corps four-star General John R. Allen. That's correct. And uh, so Catholics from various countries who are there in Kabul uh, would come together on Friday at 5 p.m. for a mass celebrated by a U.S military chaplain, a Catholic military chaplain. Uh, did you have a chance to uh, study the interactions the chaplain would have with, uh, you know, the members of the military who attended these masses? Yes, yes. I would say the, the focus of the mass was directed to the military people that were there. I mean, we were civilians there, federal law enforcement civilians, but the majority of the people there uh, were military. And I will tell you, the priest that we had that was there right at the very beginning, his name is Father John. And I look in every single mailer that you all send. I'm waiting to see his picture again sometime. He was so wonderful. Um, he's uh, Hispanic, and he had this wonderful accent. But more than anything, he was hysterical. He was so funny, and it was it was comforting that to have somebody to have a sense of humor in an extremely stressful environment, and it was just he just made everything wonderful. Now he didn't. I think he rotated home after about six months of of me attending there. So I don't know how long he had been there, uh, but he really made it. He really really did, and. You had asked about the interaction with the military. He had this tradition, and I don't know if this is something that military priests do in all overseas uh, posts, but at the end of every Mass, 
we he we all sat down and he asked for anyone who's new to country to come up. And so on your very first mass, I remember it like yesterday. You we we came up before everybody, and there were, I mean it wasn't a big space. We came up to the front, and he said, "You have the weapons you need to do your job. You have the guns you need to do your job. But I give you the weapon I need to do my job." And he gave us each a rosary and a little um, prayer of Saint Michael uh, coin and gave us a blessing for our time and country. And then it was just, it was so meaningful. It was so cool. And because you're there with, you know, military from Italy and the UK and the United States, everybody was up there that was new. And it was so impactful because it, it, it really caused us to be more of a family together. And then when it was your last mass, when you were going home, he called you those folks up last and um, thanked them for their service and gave them another rosary. Um, I still have both of my rosaries. Uh, we got another rosary for blessings for the way home. Um, and it was just always so impactful um, to have to get there and the feelings that you're going through getting to country and then the feelings you're going through knowing you're going home back to your family. And he always prayed for everybody's family. And it was just really an, an impactful way to end the mass. And um, he, he just, and I don't know if that was something he did or that's something all military priests do, but I'll just never forget it. I suppose a little sense of humor goes a long way in a war zone. Well, I'll tell you another <laughs> story. I've got a, a handful from him, and, and they're so wonderful. That went, let me set the stage a little bit. In February of uh, 2012, there was the incident at Bagram where some Korans were burned, and it caused significant uprest in the entire country, and especially in Kabul. Roads were black, no one traveled, ever, no one moved. Because of that, we didn't have Matt, we didn't have a priest, because Father John was not allowed to travel. Nobody traveled. The military was locked down. Everybody was. And so we didn't see Father John. Now, fortunately, at that time, there was a Catholic deacon. don't remember where he was from, uh, but he was with the State Department. And so he was in country with us in Kabul there. And so he would do liturgies of the Word. He would lead us in liturgy of the Word. Um, sometimes we had a guitar player who would play a song. If not, we didn't. We maybe sang a cappella or we didn't. And so we had liturgies of the word, but we didn't see Father John until way into Lent. And so when, we, when the roads first opened for him to travel and we all gather back, he processes in and he turns around and he looks at us and he smiles and he says this, today I'm going to make up two Sundays of Lent, this Sunday and Ash Wednesday, all in one time. And he's like, let's go. And so in the next 60 minutes, we made up, because we had missed the first three Sundays of Lent and the Ash Wednesday, and did all of them right there. And he was, it was really funny how he was like, we're going to do all of this. We're getting it all in. And 60 minutes, the man made up four masses. It kind of made me laugh, you know, because it's proof mass can be done in an hour. <laughs> 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 four masses in one hour. <laughs> 
but he was so funny about it. And just, you know, I think when you're in a war zone, when you're in a conflict zone, um, you really drill down on the things that are most significant. And so when you look at the scripture and the teachings and you really drill down to what do these, what are these folks um, leaving the wire every day out, you know, doing whatever, what do they need to hear from me? And he always did such a great job pulling what was needed for the folks that were before him. And, uh, and that, that was always something he did really well. And again, was just really funny. You have to be funny in a place that's so stressful um, because that's how, you, that's how you make it through. That's so. Very interesting. Um, I am talking to Sarah Wanarka, a assistant U.S. attorney in the United States Justice Department, and we're talking about her time in Afghanistan back uh, between 2012 and 2014, where uh, she was sent to uh, help uh, uh, consult with uh, Afghan prosecutors in, in their handling of criminal cases there. Um, and uh, uh, not to get sidetracked, but I do want to follow up on uh, the, the mission that you uh, were on over there. I happen to be a lawyer myself, and I found it very interesting what you said about the burden of proof. And under Afghan law, someone is arrested for, what, trafficking in opium. Uh, you said they don't have the kind of burdens of proof that we have here in the United States. In a criminal case, that would be proof beyond a reasonable doubt. So before you were there and instructing and consulting with these Afghan prosecutors, what was the standard? How easy would it be to win a conviction against someone brought in for a drug crime or any other crime for that matter? There wasn't, that I could tell there wasn't a standard. There wasn't a standard. And they, you know, I'll tell you, the folks that we worked with, the, the judges, the prosecutors, uh, they, they were brave, brave people because they were, they were prosecuting drug dealers. And as we all know, this, in Afghanistan and probably other places, the, the proceeds of drugs buy bombs and bullets. And so when you are affecting the insurgency in a way that was not beneficial to the insurgency, um, you, you could find yourself uh, threatened and hurt and murdered. And so these prosecutors and judges were so brave. And just being in their community, going to work every day, they were so brave because they were taking on the drug dealers that were, you know, that were growing the opium that was fueling the insurgency. And they, they, they did the best that they could um, in a scenario that was as stressful for them um, as it was. And there, we, being at the drug court, um, it was mentored by the United States and by the British. We had British colleagues. Um, we were able to hire a lot of women, women lawyers. Um, it, the, it's called Sarenwal in Dari's. So we were able to hire numbers of, of female Sarenwal, and they had received educations in Pakistan, India, Turkey, other places, and came back home. They came back home to their community to make it a better place. 
and we're giving these opportunities to prosecute, putting themselves and their family at risk every day. And they were so brave, and they they did they did really good work. They were they were they did great work. I see. So uh, a prosecutor would uh, haul a suspected criminal into court and present the evidence, and then what? The judge would decide, or would there be a jury, or how, yeah. how, how did that work? Yes, they they used a uh, a a three judge panel system, so they did not have juries. It was a three judge panel, and the case was actually presented to the judges in advance of the trial. Uh, we would call it trial in a box because the, the files, the pictures, the reports, uh, the statements were all put in a box if it was sizable and delivered to the court in advance of the trial. So at the day of the trial, there, were, there was evidence and there was uh, testimony, but the judges had already reviewed everything. It was, a, it was always a three-judge panel. Was the defendant entitled to legal representation? Yes. Yep. The defendant had a lawyer, always had a lawyer there in court. It was very interesting because, remember, defendants were coming from all over the, the country. And Dari spoke in, in certain parts and Pashtu spoken in other parts. And so, so much of the trials were sometimes a mix of Dari and Pashtu. I would bring interpreters with me um, that were Afghan, uh, that they were Afghans. They, they spoke beautiful English, but they also knew Dari and Pashtu. And so they would translate for me, and they would, they would be able to communicate. They're speaking in Dari. Now, the question's in Pashtu. They're answering Dari. And everybody could communicate it that way. Um, there was one significant trial, I will tell you. There was, during my time there, there was one Afghan drug dealer that President Obama placed on the OFAC uh, terrorist watch list, Haji Loljohn. And while I was there uh, with the mentorship of DEA and British SOCA, they were able to capture this prolific drug dealer. And it was a big deal because he had been designated on this watch list. I was the only observer in the trial and wow. my interpreter we i had asked the judge the chief judge judge Mayru, and she allowed me to witness the trial of this international drug dealer and it was it was so um impactful to be sitting there with this very substantial trial um, and of course, he was convicted. The evidence was overwhelming. Um, I don't know if he ever served a sentence or if he paid somebody to serve it for him, which happened occasionally. Um, but it was really cool to be in in, in a tribunal with such international uh, attention um, and and um, taking him out was a was a big deal. What was the U.S. interest in? making sure that the burden of proof was what would pass in a court here in the United States? We were interested in human rights, and we wanted to make sure the right thing was done. And if you prosecute somebody who's not guilty, then that is, that is not consistent with the principles that we were trying to impress upon the prosecutors and the judges. We wanted them to have a civilian law enforcement uh, system that was fair to everybody. It just basic fairness. And 
And part of that was making sure you had the right evidence to prosecute the right person. You say you were an Army brat, which means that you moved around quite a bit in your childhood, right? My dad uh, moved bases, but most of it was on the East Coast. And so we didn't have to move as many times um, because his, uh, the, the bases, the forts he was assigned to, were, were in driving distance. But his last duty station was Fort Sam Houston, which is how we got to Texas. And thank goodness we did, because I love it down here. <laughs> Texas is a beautiful state. Um, it and is. no doubt you uh, had interaction with some military chaplains as a child then. Absolutely. And in fact, my mother always played the organ for the masses and so and, and, and the Protestant services. So she played the Catholic mass and then she played for the Protestant service. And so uh, we we grew up actually going to both <laughs> because there we were. <laughs> it sounds like your faith has heavily influenced your uh, life uh, personally and professionally. Absolutely, and honestly, just being able to have that prayer time um, in Kabul was just such a, a moment to just be thankful um, to God, to Jesus, for the blessings, and and to be able to pray for everybody. Who, who was in support of me being there. And we all know that there's a huge shortage of Catholic priests on active duty right now. We need more. Did you sense the, um, the, the absence of priests from time to time in, there in Kabul? We did, but it was when the security wouldn't let them travel. Right, such as that, that incident that you explained where what, Korans were burned? Yes, and there were a few other incidences that would cause travel to shut down here or there for a week or two at a time um, throughout my whole time there. And it just wasn't the same. I mean, it was great when we had the deacon, but at some point he went home. And then we would have somebody that would just stand up and do some readings, and then we'd all leave. And we always still gathered, uh, whether we had a priest or not, but it's... It, it made all the difference in the world when we saw Father John walk down that aisle. Did you? Did it give you a, a, a new appreciation for uh, the need for a priest uh, at Sunday Mass? What was it like attending a Sunday gathering without a priest to celebrate the Mass? Well, it certainly wasn't the same, because there is comfort in the different stages of Mass. Um, and knowing what's happening and the richness of what only a priest can do. And so the absence of a priest was certainly, certainly noticed. I've been talking to Sarah Wanarka, an assistant U.S. attorney in the United States Justice Department, and we've been talking about uh, her uh, time in Afghanistan uh, between 2012 and 2014, two tours you did. Uh, and your experience with the Catholic military chaplains while in theater. Um, Any closing thoughts, Ms. Wanarka? When I had the opportunity to do this podcast, I was very excited about sharing the impact of the priests that we had in Kabul. I talked about Father John. We had another wonderful priest, Paul from Boston, he told amazing jokes in his Boston accent. And these men, I think, knew and understood the people before them 
were in extremely stressful situations and maybe would not be there next Sunday. And they had a, a, a real responsibility to carry us through, and, and they did. It was, it was utterly impactful to be able to go to Mass in Kabul. Sarah Winarka joining us from Alpine, Texas. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you.